turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. The title of today's message is Tearing the Clothes, Putting on Sackcloth and Ashes. I'm going to um, preach the message today about those specific things, and then next week we'll have one more message on fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and we'll apply these verses in Esther chapter 4. Let me read these for you before we start. Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth in ashes. We looked at this last week and talked about fasting and preached a message on fasting. And today I'm going to try to explain from the Bible tearing clothes, putting on sackcloth, and ashes. The first thing we must realize in today's world is that we have removed the realities of grief. Today we have funerals that display no finality. Let me try to explain. We doctor our dead loved ones' bodies until they don't even appear to be dead. If you have been to a funeral in a while, which you probably haven't because of COVID, where they have an open casket, one of the things you know about an open casket is they, they do some kind of magic there, don't they? They dress them up in clothes. I've known many a family who had to go buy their the man of the home, a suit for his casket because he didn't own one. I've heard of that happening numerous times, trying to get into a, a suit store late at night to buy a suit for the man who never wore one. Uh, not only is there clothing, fine clothing put on them, but they uh, do a lot of makeup and hair. There are actual beauticians who do the hair of our dead loved ones. And then there are makeup artists who put on the makeup of these same men and women. And it's in, a, it's in a, a desire to try to make them not look so dead. Death is ugly. Death is not beautiful. And so you often stand around those caskets and hear them say things like, doesn't she look beautiful? She hasn't looked this well since she was 30. I heard things like that, you know. He hasn't looked this good. I've I ne I never seen him looking this good, sometimes they may say about the men. And, and what is all this accomplishing? It's removing the finality of the funeral. It's removing the appearance of the, the finality of death. Some of you were not here years ago when Rob Hester passed away and he died in his 30s. He died too young. I remember one of the things that happened is many of our church began to gather at the emergency room in the hospital. And after it was declared that he was dead, many men gathered in the room where he lay on the table. Which, which men of you were here, were there that day? Any men here that day that was there? I'm not You was in there? You were in the room? 
Okay, we had a group of men in there. And we stood there for quite a while. Just We circled around this body and just laying there flat on the table. And we just stood in silence for a long time and took in his appearance as dead. It was hard to take. It was hard to accept. Um, things were said that in those moments like he was always so full of life that he was. Things were said like he's my best friend. Things were said like I'll miss him greatly. There is a reality of death that is intended by God to sink into our hearts and do its own spiritual work in our lives when we experience death. We also leave today's funerals without the real picture of the burial. Uh, most of the time, when, when I've been to funerals in our area at least, the family leaves the graveside before the body's even lowered. That's even if families today, many don't have a graveside service. But if there is, and there's a gathering at the graveside, you know, the body in the casket is sitting there above the hole, and they have it draped with felt carpets and things to hide the dirt. You can't usually see any dirt unless you really look for it. It's over there behind something, a pile of dirt where they dug the hole. And most of the time, the family and the, the people will leave the area of the graveside sometimes before the body's even lower. And if they stay that long, they for sure most always leave before there's dirt thrown on to the casket or to the body. We did something when, the, when Rob died that I had never been a part of before where we, as the men of the church, we dug the hole. And then we covered the hole. And it was extremely hard to do. Number one, that's a lot of digging. And number two, it's a lot of work. But number three, there's a lot of grieving that happens there. It wasn't so long ago, probably in a couple of these guys' lives, I won't call their names, <laughs> that's here today. It wasn't so long ago that they can probably remember the men of the church digging the graves by hand getting up late at night or early in the morning to meet out there and, and dig the graves by hand with a shovel. But one of the things we learned by participating in that digging and burying of the, of the body, or in this case it was only ashes, it's incredibly healing. It's incredibly grieving. Uh, when Ha Ha passed away, I call him Ha. Many of you know him as Harold Harper, but most of you know him as Ha Ha. Uh, we shoveled some dirt on his grave because we wanted to identify with him. And there was a lot of healing that takes place in that. Funerals are meant to have a finality on the earth. We also have removed the realities of grief with sin. There is now sins with no confession. I'll just ask you a question about this one. Have you ever seen somebody, or has it been a, a while since you've seen somebody weeping for their sins? I have seen that. 
I, because of the nature of what I do being a pastor, I, I see that more than I'd like to, I guess, but I have seen that, and it's growing to be more rare than ever. It's, it's something even I see less and less. There is great power in somebody crying and weeping in confession over their sins. So I'm going to look at this today and just basically have two points. So the first one I'm going to deal with torn clothes, and then the second one I'm going to deal with ashes and uh, sackcloth together. Sorrow over death causes torn clothes and fasting. Uh, there is no real defining notion between, if you, we have three things we're looking at today, torn clothes, putting on sackcloth, and putting on ashes, okay? There's no real defining in Scripture between these things or saying exactly what they are. But there is a commonality. There's, if you look at all the Scriptures, which is what I tried to do, look at all the Scriptures with torn clothes, most of the time it had to do with sorrow over death. Either death that had just occurred or death that was coming. Uh, Reuben, the brother of Joseph, tore his clothes when he thought Joseph was dead, it says in Genesis chapter 37. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed jo Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers, and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Jacob also tore his clothes, that was that'd be Joseph's father, tore his clothes, put on sackcloths to his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. So usually in the Bible, torn clothes represents a great sorrow over either somebody's just died or the belief that somebody is about to die. Think about this. I started to wear clothes today that I could tear, tear open, but Andrew, I'm not sure I was strong enough to tear you. <laughs> Our clothes are made much better than they were back then. But uh, The Jews still practice this as a, as a tradition at their funeral services where they'll be given a special garment. If you're the mother or the father of the person who died, the garment is supposed to cover your heart and you tear it there. If you're a brother or sister, the garment is supposed to cover your right side of your heart, of your chest, and you would tear it there. There's always to be an undergarment underneath so as to not expose your skin. But the tearing of clothes, think about that for just a second. They literally take their hands and the strength and tear their clothes to, to express how broken they are and how sorrowful they are over the pain of death. Tearing clothes symbolizes the pain and grief in the moment of death. This body is only clothing of the soul. This mortal body is only clothing of the soul. And so when you tear your clothes, what you're symbolizing is that the body is gone, but the soul remains. The soul lives on for eternity. It is only the body that has been torn away from us and that person who has left us, their soul still lives on. Fasting is normal in the death of those that you love. If you have somebody who you love deeply who passes away, chances are you won't eat. You'll miss meals. Possibly you will not eat for days, which is what fasting is, right? It's to go without food. We looked at last week. If you've fasted this week after the message last week, I, I, I believe some of you probably did. Fast this week, I, I know of some, who 
because of the message last week, you implemented it into your life. One of the things you realize if you did that this week is when you begin to fast, all of a sudden, you're really hungry. <laughs> the moment you cut something out, you, it's all you can do, but, but think about it. I need food. i got to eat. And you've set the clock, and this is how long I've got, and I can't eat till then. And it feels like you're dying not to eat. But that's not the case in death, when somebody you love dies or passes away. It's not hard to fast. It's more normal for those that you love that you would not eat because your body is so broken. Your heart is so broken. Your body accommodates your heart. You, you are so sorrowful, sorrowful over the one who has died that you care nothing about food. When your loved one dies, they're not thinking about eating. You could say it this way. My body is filled with sorrow. I have no room for food. I'm, I'm stuffed. Somebody might say it at the death of their loved one. I'm stuffed. What are you, why aren't you not eating? I'm not hungry. Why are you not hungry? Because I'm stuffed. What are you stuffed with? Sorrow. My heart is filled with sorrow. There's no room for food in my body. I'm stuffed. There can also be sorrow over the fear of death, and that can be just as powerful. Not death that has occurred, but the death that could come. The fear of a coming death or a diagnosis that says you could die soon can cause you to tear your clothes and to fast. In Acts chapter 27, you may be familiar with the story of Paul when he owned the ship. And the Bible says that there was a great wind that came, a great storm that came, and they were fear of dying at sea, and that the men of the ship fasted for 14 days out of fear that they're going to die of shipwreck. In both of these cases, either death or the fear of death, the not eating of food is, is very natural and normal. That is not to say that it's good for you. I'm often at someone's home after a death of a loved one and everybody's trying to get that person to eat. Have you been, have you been there? You need to eat something. And it's, it's a hard task to get them to eat. But it's something that just happens. When the reality of death overcomes a person, you lose hunger. In your sorrow, you do not care for food. In this reality of death, natural food does nothing for your heart. Only God can heal the heart. Only God can sustain the heart in that time of sorrow over death. You're not permitted to tear your flesh, that is, to cut yourself when a loved one dies, or to tattoo your flesh. The Bible often talks about somebody tearing their clothes when someone dies, but it does not talk about cutting yourself except to say you cannot do it. It says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. And so you're not to cut your body, nor to put a tattoo on your body, in remembrance of the dead, it's something that has become somewhat popular in our day and time for somebody to get a tattoo because of dead ones. 
why does God not allow this? Because either case, cutting your body or tattooing your body would cause a permanent mark. It would make a permanent mark on your body to say, this sorrow is permanent. To say, this death is permanent. And neither is true. The sorrow for your loved one is not something you'll have for all eternity because one day you'll see them again. And the death of your loved one is certainly not permanent. Because in that instant, in that twinkling, in that moment, the Bible says it this way, in that gasp, like that, the moment they stop breathing, they start living in eternity if they're saved with the Lord God Almighty. And so it's not permanent. It's temporary. So you're not to cut yourself or to tattoo yourself. Because the, the Bible teaches that death is not the end. It's a rather a passing from death right into life instantaneously. And by tearing your clothes and not your bodies, you're expressing great grief, but you're also expressing this grief is not forever. It's not final. And three notes. Sorrow over sin causes putting on sackcloth and ashes. So I've covered tearing clothes is, is sorrow over death, primarily. And sackcloth and ashes usually has to do with sin. And it's there to show repentance. Let's talk first of all about ashes. To cover in ashes was to express repentance, to cover your body in ashes. Job says in chapter 42, verse 6, Therefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. If you think about what ashes are, they are the remains of what has been burned. It's what's left over, this little pile of dirt and dust and particles that's, that's remaining after something has been burned. And so the, the burning or the ashes that have been burnt represents or pictures death or coming death. So not only is death coming, but destruction is coming if you continue in sin. And, and here's where it kind of ties in with death and sin and repentance. You find out, say, that you're going to die in a week. Then the first thing that hits you in the reality of this truth that I'm going to die in a week is... I'm about to meet God. And if I'm about to meet God, the next thing you're going to think about is how you've been living. What's been going on in your life? What kind of sinful ways do you have? And then the next thing you think is if I'm about to meet God and my life looks so sinful to me, then I want to get right and I want to repent before I meet God. And so the wearing of ashes is to say, I'm dying, I'm facing death, and I am repenting. Because I want to get right. Psalms 102 verses 9 through 11. For I have eaten ashes like bread. And mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens. And I wither away like grass. Look at the last sentence. My days are like a shadow that lengthens. That means I'm about to die. I wither away like grass. That means my life is short and I'm about to die. And because of that, look at the first sentence. I am eating ashes like bread. I have realized that I am facing death and it has become my sustenance 
that I am weeping and my tears have become my drink and I want to get right with God before I die is what he's saying. And so these ashes or taking these ashes and putting them on your body, they would put them on their head, they would put them on their body, sometimes they would sit in them, sometimes the Bible talks about rolling in them, sometimes the Bible talks about pouring them over you. It's to say I'm, I'm facing death and I want to get right with God. And so I'm repenting. And so if you put those ashes on your body, it was a, it was a statement that I am repenting. I am turning back to you, O Lord. Now let's look at sackcloth. Sackcloth is just that. It is a sack that was cloth. For, for us to think of it would be the old-timey flowers that sacks, you know. That, or for today... For you to think of it today would be a sack that seed comes in. If you buy a if you buy a fifty pound bag of fescue seed, it comes in, in that bag that's pretty heavy and thick, and you wouldn't want to wear it. It's it's made back then from coarse goat's hair, uh, being a very rough and itchy hair of a goat. Usually, it would be a black goat. I don't know. Maybe that's partially where we get our idea of wearing black clothing. It was a sack not made for wearing because it is itchy and painful if you wear it on your skin. When the Bible talks about those wearing sackcloth, it says that they gird their loins with sackcloth. They would wrap it around themselves and it would be on their bare skin. And it would be visible for you to see. It, it would be like underwear, if I could say it that way. It would be upon the part of your body that would be like underwear, and it would be most dreadful for you. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26, he says, O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. For the plunder will suddenly come upon us. He says, notice he says they're more like as for an only son. He's saying death is coming. Death is coming. Look, suddenly it says, suddenly it will come upon us. And so here's what God prescribes. Dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. And so adorn your body in sackcloth and realize the painfulness of sin that it has been causing. I want you to get this. If you're here today and you're living in sin and you know you are, you know you're not right with God, you know you're not where you need to be with God, then for you to consistently be able to live in that position, you have set aside all the consequences of that sin. You have set aside all the possible damages of that sin. You have set aside all the death that that sin is causing in your life. And so when you come to yourself and you recognize it, and if you were to put on sackcloth, what you'd be saying is, oh, the pain of the sin that I've been living in for these few days, or however long it's been. And you're saying by wearing the sackcloth and putting the ashes on you, death is coming, I must meet God, I must get right with God, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus spoke of it, he says, Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Here's what he's saying. If you, if he's telling this in the New Testament. If you, you have seen so many miracles at the hands of Jesus. You have seen Jesus heal people and forgive people of their sins. He says if Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament had seen what my works you have seen, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. They would have put sackcloth on their bodies and ashes on their heads and they would have repented long ago before God if they had seen what you have seen. And so sackcloth and ashes has to do with sin, but more importantly, it has to do with showing repentance. Showing what's going on inside your heart when you are repenting in sorrow for your sin and you, and you want to change. You want things to be different now. I must say to you, do not underestimate the sorrow of sin. There are many people today who live and are sad. People you wouldn't even think about. I'm a pastor and so I see this firsthand. And, and most of the time when I get a call or I have an encounter with somebody who is consumed with sorrow, most of the time that sorrow that they're consumed with is over sin. Maybe it's their own sin. Maybe it's their spouse's sin. Maybe it's their children's sin. Maybe it's their friend's sin. But somehow it has to do with sin. And they're consumed with this sorrow. And I see it firsthand. I've seen grown men and women lay on the floor and cry like babies. I've seen grown men do what the Bible calls weeping and wailing. What, what we're going to see next week about Mordecai weeping and wailing. I've seen men do that. I've seen women weep and wail. Sin is so heavy on the heart. It is, you could, you, you could say it's like death. I'll go a step further. It's worse than death. How many times have we said of a spouse, is, uh, you know, to have a spouse die is bad, but to have a spouse cheat in adultery is far worse. Because you relive the, the death and the hurt of that over and over and over. Much longer. So sin is worse than death. It's a, it's a weight on the heart. It consumes people. Do you know it's, it's worse than death to commit sin and to live in sin. It causes your soul to mourn and your soul to weep. Do you know this? Sin is so heavy on the soul, it disfigures a person's countenance, their, their appearance. I'll prove it to you in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. The look on their countenance witnessed against them, and they declared their sin as Sodom. They did not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Look what it says. The look on their countenance witnessed against them. I see this happen often in churches. I, uh, I'll hear one church person speak of another church person and, and say something like, well, they weren't very nice to me today. They didn't even speak. Do you know a lot of times when that happens in church, it's because that person who just walked into church is so guilty for their sin so 
heavy under the weight of their sin, they don't even have the energy to speak to somebody else. That's the truth. I want you to know that. Some people that are so heavy under the weight of their sin, it was all they could do to get to church that day. Little at all be able to put on a happy face and, and, and in mockery and speak to you or to me. Their countenance is a witness against them. They are heavy under the burden of their sin. The weight of it has consumed them. Their heart is broken. And they, they want, they need, they cry out to God for relief. I think some people get in such a pattern of this sinful way of their lives. They do this Sunday after Sunday for sometimes for months and sometimes even maybe years go by. Daniel chapter 9 verse 3 through 5 gives us an example of how to deal with this. It says, Then I set, I set my face toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. There's all of them together. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even, from, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. One of the ways that God gave His people to repent was to fast, put on sackcloth and ashes, and begin to confess their sin to God and repent before Him. We go into application and have two points. Number one, there is a public display involved in all of these. It's a very public thing. It's not hidden. It's, it's not secretive. It's not behind closed doors. Let me give you just a few examples of the public nature of it. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, the king of Nineveh covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. You know, Nineveh was supposed to be destroyed by God, <coughs> prophesied to be destroyed by God because of their sin. And the king of Nineveh, when he hears it, he covers himself with sackcloth. It, it means literally that he didn't just put sackcloth around his loins. He, he put it on his whole body. It's like it, it was the only garment that he wore that day was sackcloth. And he sat down in a pile of ashes. Many of you have been to my house uh, where we have the bonfire always over there next to the barn. And we've done it for so many years that the ground gets higher over there because of the pile of ashes from so many things, so much wood being burned there over the years. I don't know how many years we've done it there, but it's always in the same place. And sometimes the, the pile of wood will be 20, 30 feet in the air when we start the fire. And it all burns down to a pile. And, and I thought this week about just going out there and sitting in that ash pile for a while. We want my daughters and my wife to call 911. But... <laughs> That's what the king of Nineveh did. In Job chapter 2 verse 8. When Job found out that his children had died, he had lost everything else. He had lost all that he had. The Bible says that Job went out and he sat in ashes. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 19, Tamar, it says, poured ashes over her head. Poured them on her head. In Psalm 102, verse 9, 
It says, I've eaten ashes like my bread, and my tears have been my drink. You see, if, if you tear your clothes, if you put on sackcloth that was to be visible, it, it was to show, and if you put ashes on your body, think about it, if you put it on your face, your face would be black. If you put it on my bald head, my bald head would be black. If you poured it over your head, you would be black. If you sat in it, you would tell that you had sit in something you weren't supposed to sit in. All these are very public in nature. All of these could be easily visible to those who would come in contact with you. And it was an outward sign of an inward condition. It was an outward symbol that says, Look, I'm having the time with God right now, and there's something going on inside my heart. There's a change going on inside of me. And I want all of you people to know God's doing something in my life right now because I'm wearing sackcloth and I put on ashes. I want you to know that God's changed my heart. He started something new in me because I put on sackcloth and I'm wearing ashes and I tore my garments. And in all of these, when God responds, it's not because of the outward demonstration of sackcloth and ashes. Or tearing of your clothes. But it's, it's when God responds, it's because God looks inside and He sees the change that's happening in your heart. And God responds immediately. The outward display was to make a matter of our grief and our sorrow fully known to all the people who loved us. We miss out on that today. Sometimes when I preach... I'm so broken by what I've learned about a family or a person that's in our congregation, I barely can muster the strength to come and mount this pulpit. And for some of, some of those times, it would do the congregation well to know what had happened, to understand what had gone on for many reasons. Their sympathy would be, would be heightened. Their compassion and prayer would only be stronger. You might even begin to fast for them. I know in the genuine church of the Lord Jesus there would not be condemnation. There would not be looking down of the nose. There would be brokenness and weeping together where we can do what the Bible says and weep with those who weep and cry with those who cry. This outward visible demonstration was for all to see that God's doing something in my heart and my heart is changing. It makes the outward display of your grief and your sorrow fully known to everybody who loves you. There's a reason for this, I believe. I, you say, do you believe that's God's design for us to share more about our griefs and our sorrows? I, I do. I do believe that's God's design, especially with our church people. I'll give you one reason why, just a simple reason why. We are not always in the proper place to have compassion and see the griefs of people when they just simply tell it to us. Are you willing to admit that about yourself? I'll admit it about myself. Somebody begins to share with you about, let's say it's a sickness. I've got this sickness right now. We will, we will say the right things. We'll say, I'm sorry for that. We'll say, I'll pray for you. 
We'll say something, maybe like, bless your heart. That's a mountain thing. Bless your heart. But in that moment, do we always have the compassion to really understand their pain, to really identify with their pain, to really let their pain become our pain and, 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 and us love on them genuinely with the compassion? We don't always do that, do we? I encourage you when a person is telling you their sorrow, look at their eyes. And if you see tears in their eyes, ask that God would let you have tears in your eyes, genuine tears in your eyes. If they're telling you of your, their sorrow and their voice begins to quiver, do you hear that quiver in their voice? If you see somebody who keeps telling their problems and they tell them over and over and they tell them to this one and they tell them to that, do you notice they keep telling their sorrows? It would have been a public display. I would encourage you. You say, you could easily, but on this point, say, John, you don't do that. <laughs> You'd be right. It was so hard for us to do when Cindy had cancer. You know, when we first found out she had cancer, they told us that she had a year to live. We didn't tell you that. Because we didn't want our children to know that. Some of you still might not have known that. What that means is we went a year. Believing my life wasn't going to live but a year. Think about that for a second. That did a lot. That means that when I told to you about her cancer, many of you had way more hope than I had. Or she had. Maybe that explains our conversation that day, Justin. When you spoke with such hope of God's just going to carry it, we did a lot. Well, we got a year, but he didn't say that. It probably would have been better if I would have. We don't always know. We don't always see. I want to encourage all of us to share our sorrows. Number two, God notices and responds to torn clothes, wearing sackcloth and ashes, and fasting. You say, well, God won't forgive me. You say, well, God won't respond to me. He might respond to you. Well, that guy over there is so godly, or that mom over there, she's so godly, but he won't respond to me. And I would say, bless your heart. You are so wrong. You know that in the Bible, as I studied this sackcloth and ashes and tearing clothes, I come across something that kind of startled me. I came across a story in 1 Kings about King Ahab. King Ahab is the guy who was married to Jezebel. That gives you, brings it back to memory. Probably one of the most wicked and evil kings there's ever been. Listen to what the Bible says about him. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. He behaved very abominably. Abominably. That means he did lots of abominations. He followed the idols. According to the Amorites and what they had done, 
whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard these words, God told Ahab, I'm, I'm going to take you out, basically, because of your evil. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his body, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. So this most wicked king, when he learns the judgment of God is coming for him, he puts on sackcloth and, and mourns and fasts in sackcloth. And the Bible says this in the next few verses. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying this, I have this verse for you. See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. Here's the point. God notices and responds to torn clothes, wearing sackcloth, and putting on ashes. How do you know? Well, he even responded to wicked King Ahab when he did this. Isn't that amazing? The most wicked king there's been in Israel, and when he responds with this kind of repentance, God responds to him. And God notices his re repentance. God does not respond because of his outward portrayal, but God responds because he sees what's going on inwardly in his heart. The devil whispers in your ear. Stay in your grief. Stay in your sorrow. Stay in your brokenness. Maybe your sorrow and your brokenness is because of hurt. Maybe it's because of sickness. Maybe it's because of death. Maybe your sorrow is because of sin in your person. Maybe your sorrow is because of someone else's sin against you. Maybe your sorrow is because of the sin of your family or the sin of someone you love. In any case, the devil likes you to be broken and sorrowful and downtrodden and depressed. Depression is at an all-time high. In our country, who has more than any country in the world, more than money can buy. And depression is at an all-time high. People who are sad, people who are sorrowful, are you, are you challenging it to say it's not real? No, that's not what I'm doing at all. I believe it's real, but it's not where God intends us to live as believers. It's one thing that separates us from the world. Sorrow does not hold us like it does the world. And the devil wants you to believe that it does. The devil wants to believe that you are bound for sorrow from this day to the day you die. The devil wants you to believe because of something that happened or something that came into your life, sorrow has gripped you and it will never let you go. In Joel chapter 2 verse 13, it says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Here it says, rend your heart. Tear your heart and not your garments. This is, this is what that means. Let your heart be broken for God. Your heart, if you are living in sorrow, believe it or not, what's happening is your heart is actually becoming hard. Not soft. Hard to the things of God. Hard to the reproves of God. He says, rend your heart. 
return to the Lord. He is gracious and merciful. In other words, it's saying that through Jesus, there is a way to return. There is a way to come back. You don't have to stay in your mourning. You don't have to stay in your sorrow. You don't have to continue to drink your tears any longer. You don't have to be in seclusion. You don't have to be alone in this sorrow. You don't have to be destitute in this sorrow. Come back to the house of the Lord. I'm going to close with preaching to you Isaiah chapter 61 verse 3. If you want to turn there, you can. It's going to be on the screen in just a second. I want to give you the verses before this statement in Isaiah 61 verse 3. And here's what it says. And this is for me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to those who are captive, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn. I told you last week, and I've told you many times, I'll, if you want to pray for me, pray that the Spirit of God would be upon me when I preach, because I'm nothing without Him. But these verses say the Spirit of God is upon me, and it, it says it's on me for this reason, to preach the good tidings to those who need it, the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captive, and to open the prison doors to those who are bound, to proclaim that this is the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort those who mourn. He's saying, I am anointed of God to preach this. To preach this. What is this? That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what God anoints men to preach. The gospel. Now here's the verses that follow that. The one verse that follows that. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I've got I to preach some of that, okay? Beauty for ashes, that's what it says first. Even before that, to console those who mourn. Today is the day, that's what he's anointed me to preach. Today is the day. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. Your mourning is to be over. Your weeping is to be done. Your sorrow is to be removed today. That's why he says, to console those who mourn. This is your consolation. And then he gives us this list. To give them beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. You have been wearing ashes. Remember what the ashes were. They're smeared on your head. Your, your head is black. They're on your face. Your face is black. You've sat in them. The ashes have gotten all over you. Here's what that means. It's like death has consumed you. Your sorrow has consumed you like death. And he says now he gives you beauty in place of those ashes. The word for beauty in the Hebrew language is, is a garland. It's a garland of flowers. It's, like, it's literally a headdress of flowers that would sit on your head. Where you have put ashes on your head because you've been consumed by death and dying, God now puts flowers on your head. Ashes say I'm dying. Flowers say I'm living. Death has passed and life is coming. Beauty for ashes. He says in the next phrase, He has given you the oil of joy for mourning. 
Oil in the Bible represents anointing. Your head has been anointed with mourning, sorrow. It's like that has been your season. That may have been your year. That may have been the time that you're in. You have been had mourning flowing down your cheeks in the form of your tears. It's like you've been anointed with mourning. You weep and you cry till you can weep and cry no more. You're broken until you can be broken no more. You've cried until the tears have dried on your face. Mourning has consumed you. But God is saying now the oil of joy will flow down your face again. Gladness will return to your countenance. Laughter will return to your lips. The joy of the Lord will take that sad countenance that everyone could see and restore a glad countenance that only God can give. God will anoint you today with the joy, the oil of joy. He says in the next phrase, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The spirit of heaviness there is a picture of the wearing of sackcloth. That heavy goat skin that itches and scratches and makes pain and makes sorrow. You've been wearing sackcloth. And God says he'll take off the sackcloth and he'll give you a garment of praise. He'll take off the clothing of sackcloth and he'll put on clothes for you that are praise clothing. You've been so heavy in sorrow for so long. It was all you could bear. It hurt so bad. It hurt so bad. And now God tears the sackcloth from you and He says, now put on these clothes. These are the clothes of praise. The days of sackcloth are over. It's time to praise God again. It's time to put on clothes now that you'll praise God again. It's time for everything you wear. To proclaim, I worship God. I remember when Rick Jesse's daughter died. And she died at a at a age too young to die. I was at the house as fast as I could be, and there was such, there was such a brokenness there. You remember that death? She was a young lady. There was such a brokenness there. There's always a brokenness in death, but this one had a. The greater, the greater brokenness because of how the death had occurred. You know me. You know me too well. I don't know what to say in a situation like that. I can't do anything. I was just there. Been there for several hours. People were crying outside. People were crying in the living room. People were crying upstairs. People were just crying everywhere. The brokenness had consumed the place. Rick comes and gets me out in the yard. I'm in the yard. He says, John, we got to go. I got to get somewhere where I can talk to God. Will you go with me? I said, I'll go with you. I get my car, your car. He said, I don't think we can get out of the driveway. There's so many cars were packed around. He said, come with me to the garage. We go to the garage. Ronnie got two four-wheelers in there. We jumped on those four-wheelers. Took off on a trail that he had obviously worn. The path was worn from his backyard. And we went on places I'd never been before, directions I'd never been before. And we ended up, if you come up 401, there's a big, it's like a river, I don't know what it's called, that big body of water that crosses there. And we come up upon that body of water, and I thought, where are we going now? I'm following him. He's flying. I mean, he was going so fast, that's all I could do to keep up. We get to this big body of water, and I think, where is he going? 
and he flies right out into the water, into the depths of the flowing water, and he does a little 360 donut on top of this rock, and he stops right there, and the water's just still passing by. It's about this deep on the four-wheeler, and I pull up right beside him. Turns it off. And that man cried. Oh, did he cry out there. He cried and he cried and he cried. He moaned and he wept and he called out to God and asked God why. He asked God how. He said, his, he, said he loved his daughter. It went on for some time. I didn't say a word. I was broken watching my friend be broken. And after a long pause, he said this. He said, God, how can I know so much peace right now? This is just a few hours after it happened. How can I know so much peace right now? And he began to declare worship for God. He began to say, I worship you, God. I worship you, God. He said it through his tears, I worship you, God. I know many of you have experienced something similar to that. When your heart is so broken and your heart is so heavy, it's like the clothing you're wearing is the clothing of sackcloth. And, and nothing else can get to you but pain and sorrow and hurt. And somehow... Only one person can get through all that, and his name is Jesus. And he gets all the way to your heart, and he says, Son, take off the garments of heaviness now. Take off the, the heaviness that has consumed your soul. It's time to put on the garments of praise again. It's time to worship God again. I want everything you wear to look like you're a God worshiper. I want everything you wear to declare to the world, I worship God. Even through your tears, let your countenance be changed to declare, I worship God. The next phrase he says that they may be called trees of righteousness. Trees of righteousness. You know what that means? Christian people are not to live in sin and not to live in sorrow. Not for very long. In Ephesians, there's a passage, there's a verse in the book of Ephesians that says, uh, lists all these sins, and it says, and such were some of you. You know the phrase? It says, and such were some of you. In other words, you used to be that way, but you're not that way anymore. You must remember what you used to be and where God brought you from, but you're not to remain in sin and continue to live in it any longer. You're to be called a tree of righteousness. The last phrase, the Lord, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The Lord planted you. The Lord started what he's doing in you and he's going to finish what he's doing in you. And so I say to you, I preach to you, it's time. Time if your heart is broken and sorrow has consumed you. It could be the sorrow of death or it could be the sorrow of sin. In either case, it's time for that morning to end and you to return to God. And rejoice before the Lord once again and worship Him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I can't 
do enough. I beg you if I could. Would you return to the ways of the Lord today? Would you leave sorrow, the place of sorrow, and come to the Lord, the place of rejoicing? Run to Jesus and his cross and what he'll do for you will amaze you. How he'll heal you will amaze you. How he'll restore you will amaze you. He'll give you back worship. He'll give you back joy. He'll give you back hope. He'll fill you with love again. I beg you, in Jesus' name, will you turn back to him and leave the season of sorrow? It's so wonderful when you leave the season of sorrow. We come back to the place of rejoicing today. If that's you, would you just pray a prayer, something like this to God. Lord, I'm tired of living in sorrow. I'm tired of living in pain. Will you, will you bring me back? Will you bring me back to the place of rejoicing, Lord? Will you give me back worship? Will you give me back praise? Will you take me from death and bring me to life again? If you're here and you've never been saved, if you'd say, Lord, will you save me? Will you save me, Lord? I may think I'm saved, but I'm not sure. Will you save me, Lord? I want to know it. Will you save me? Will you be my Lord? Father, help us today. Help us, Lord, to return to you and walk with you. Forgive us for our waywardness and our sorrow. We rejoice today in Jesus. We rejoice in you, Lord. Hallelujah. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?